Hi, I'm Dr. Pat Basu, President and CEO of Cancer Treatment Centers of America and the host of Focus on Cancer. We have a very special show today where I welcome former Cabinet Secretary, Dr. David Shulkin. Dr. Shulkin served as the ninth Secretary of Veterans Affairs in the Trump administration and also served previously in the Obama administration. He's one of the few individuals who's led very complex healthcare organizations ranging from academic medical centers to the public sector. Dr. Shulkin, it's a pleasure to have you here. Thanks for being on the show. Glad to be with you today, Pat. Well, before we dive in, and we've got a lot to cover, uh, you know, you're joining us at a very auspicious time. Uh, tomorrow happens to be Veterans Day, a, uh, a special day where, where we set aside uh, time to honor uh, those who have served um, uh, this great nation. And uh, nobody knows better than you, uh, the veteran community, their, their sacrifice, their service, their heroism. And uh, so I know you'll join me in recognizing the more than 19 million uh, U.S. veterans across the country and, uh, and, and, and honoring them uh, for Veterans Day tomorrow. Yeah, Pat, you know, it really is a very special day for so many people across this country. And I, you know, I would just like to say two things besides wishing our veterans a very happy Veterans Day. Uh, first is, is that um, less than 1% of Americans now serve in our military. As you know, it's a completely voluntary military. And so we have a very small minority of our citizens who sacrifice and stand up for the rest of us. And I think many people don't know veterans personally now and don't get a chance to meet these remarkable people. But uh, I can assure you it was one of the best parts of my job, spending time with our veterans and seeing just what incredible patriots these people are. And secondly, I want to wish a happy Veterans Day to their families, because when a person raises their hand to serve, it really is the entire family that serves. And so this is a uh, incredible day of recognition for our veterans and their families. Well, I appreciate you sharing b both of those points, uh, uh, David. They, um, uh, you know, I served in the Obama White House with a, um, a a military colonel who was very active in in the the veteran community, and he shared something very similar to to what you said was that, you know, after World War II, seemingly, you know, the population that had served was was much higher. And there was a lot of relationships, cross-linkage between those who had served uh, and those who had not having relationships with, with other veterans. There's some statistic, and I don't want to misquote it, but it's a it's a very small percentage now of um, of American citizens who actually know a veteran um, or have a family member that's been a veteran. And so um, that's you know that's something that we need to. To really work on because I agree these are incredible men and women who have given um, so much of a sacrifice and and you hit the nail on the head sacrifice from their family lives sacrifice for the country uh, I've had the privilege of uh, of serving as a physician in uh, at, at the VA system in, in in California and in Illinois and in the same way I feel about cancer patients they're just amazing right they they you know, they they say say thank you, and they're very grateful for us caring for them. Although I want to say no, <laughs> thank you back to you. And they're just they're just incredible men and women, and I, I really share that sentiment that I wish everybody could, uh, you know, could know and, and interact more with our amazing our amazing veterans. Absolutely. 
Well, uh, you've had a, uh, a very multidisciplinary career, as I mentioned uh, in your introduction. Uh, you, you've led a variety of, uh, of complex arenas from, uh, you know, large academic medical centers, Beth Israel in New York, um, uh, UPenn and, and Temple, uh, all the way to uh, the VA system, which is, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe, you know, probably the largest, uh, you know, healthcare system. Uh, by, by many measures. Um, you're a physician, a, a board-certified uh, internist. Um, so you've done a lot in, uh, in public service and in medicine, but let's just rewind for our audience. Uh, tell us how you first got into, into medicine. Well, actually, I wanted to be a fireman, not a doctor. Uh, I loved rushing to emergencies and helping people. So as soon as I turned 16, I joined the local volunteer fire department. And whenever that fire bell went off, I went running to try to go help people. And in medical school, I always wanted to be an emergency medicine physician, again, responding to those types of emergencies. And I ended up going into internal medicine in large part because of doing what's called the couples match with my uh, classmate who I met in medical school, who's now my wife of over 30 years, where a computer told us where we'd be going. And so I didn't get to be that emergency physician, but later as I finished my residency and I got into administrative medicine, I was always attracted to situations that really required uh, prompt administrative interventions, uh, you know, situations that had burning platforms that needed to be changed and fixed. And that ultimately uh, was one of the attractions of the VA to me because it was a system of crisis when I entered the VA. Well, that's a great story, and uh, g glad to hear that uh, that you and your wife uh, going thirty years strong. I I remember in uh, when I first started med school, our, our dean looked out in the audience and said, uh, you know, we had a class of about ninety people, and said uh, that um, that there would be at least three three couples that that come out of the class, and uh, he turned out to be turned out to be right. So so I'm glad to hear that, and uh, in, in many ways, given your career, you've. Uh, uh, you've been putting out uh, figurative fires, probably for as you know, as a leader uh, throughout your career, and we'll we'll talk a bit more about that. And Pat, let me just add that you know nothing ever happens purely by chance. Uh, you have to know yourself as a person, and I knew that once I went to medical school, I'd be spending way too much time with my book, so I better give myself the best odds. So, although I was fortunate to have gotten into a number of different medical schools, I ended up choosing to go to the Women's Medical College of Pennsylvania. Now it's called Drexel University because the class was 60% women and I figured I'd have a better chance of meeting somebody. So that plan fortunately worked out and 30 something years later, I'm happy to say that was a good choice. David, you and I have known each other uh, personally, and so I know a little bit of your story, although I, I did not know the, uh, the the Drexel Women's College part of it. I, I do know that both your grandfathers fought in World War One, and you have a, a rich personal history rooted in in serving uh, the U.S. Um, so in, in many ways, it you've always had this thread of, of public service, of, of dedication to the country, um, in in parallel, or, or maybe in some ways even before your your pursuit of medicine. Um, so tell us a bit of of how you ended up uh, at the at the VA. Yeah, well, first of all, let me just um, reinforce that we're all products of where we came from, and I grew up in um, 
patriotism and respect for your country and giving back was always part of it. My uh, paternal grandfather, actually, when he um, first came to this country, opened up his own pharmacy. And he was a terrible businessman because he kept on giving away all the medicine to the people who couldn't afford to pay for it and ultimately went out of business. And early on became the very first pharmacist at the Madison, Wisconsin VA. And so he worked at the Veterans Administration his entire professional career, mostly. And so I would hear stories from him about how much he loved taking care of his fellow veterans. My dad was a psychiatrist, and I was actually born on an Army base in Highland Park, Illinois, not too far from where uh, you live, Pat. And uh, so being part of uh, the veteran community was always a big uh, deal for me. But I never got a chance to serve myself. I had just missed the Vietnam draft. Um, and I was in medical school in my 20s in training. And so never had a chance to serve. Uh, ultimately, much later in my career, after I had become a chief executive officer of several hospitals, I had an opportunity to uh, have lunch with somebody who I didn't know at the time. Uh, he invited me to lunch, and at the end of the lunch, he asked me, he said, David, you've had a really great career. Uh, do you have any regrets? And I said, you know, maybe the only regret is is that I never really got a chance to directly give back to my country and to serve. And I'm reading in the newspaper about all this horrible wait times going on for our veterans and this wait time crisis that had led to the resignation of the current secretary, and I just wish there was something I could do to help. Um, about an hour later, my phone rang, my cell phone, and I picked it up, and they said, is this Dr. Shulkin? And I said, yeah, it is. And they said, this is the White House. And I thought, of course, somebody was pranking me, but in fact, it was the White House. And they asked whether I could come and meet with them that day to talk to them about whether uh, I might help take over and fix the VA healthcare system, which of course um, I ended up saying, absolutely, if there was something I could do to help and to give back, and I felt like I had developed some skills that might be helpful, um, it was an easy answer for me, Pat. Well, fantastic. I, I, I'm sure it was uh, knowing you and, and knowing your uh, your patriotism. I. I do know uh, what it's like to to get a, a somewhat of a surprise phone call from the White House, and uh, and as you know, um, uh, and had a chance to work at the White House in in 2010. Um, you did some really uh, remarkable things. Uh, were, a, were a tremendous leader during that time. Take us back to sort of that era. What were some of the big uh, uh, accomplishments and, and objectives that you were looking to achieve uh, at, at uh, the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs while you were there? I believed that this was a system that was worth saving. And I believe that it's part of our responsibility as a country that when you send men and women, your sons and daughters essentially off to conflict, that you do have a responsibility to make sure that they're okay and to care for them if they need the help when they come back. So that was the basic belief system that I had, which is that this was a system that was experiencing problems when I got there. And it was my job to help make it better and leave it in a better place when ultimately I would leave the organization. And just to give people a sense of the timing, this wait time crisis that I talked about 
happened in April of 2014. That's when it became public, leading to the resignation of the secretary and the undersecretary and many other people, including criminal charges that were being pursued against people in the VA because of this wait time issue. Uh, by the time that I got to Washington, it was not until July of 2015. So that was approximately 15 months after the wait time crisis. And that had to do with the entire process of vetting a candidate that would have to go through confirmation by the US Senate and appointed by the president. So that was a long period of time. Uh, of course, President Obama was the commander in chief and president at the time. Um, but when I finally arrived in Washington 15 months later, the wait time crisis hadn't been fixed. In fact, it wasn't clear to me that there had been much progress at all. So I had a burning platform. I had a real clear purpose that um, I really didn't focus on anything other than making sure that our veterans were seen when they needed to be seen and that they weren't waiting and being harmed because of that wait. And so I ultimately made the commitment to President Obama that I would fix this. And I was able to tell him by December of 2016 that every VA medical center across the country was seeing patients on a same day basis. So any veteran who came and had a urgent medical problem, whether it was a physical problem or a emotional problem, a behavioral health care issue, would be seen on that same day. And that was the way that I was able to assure that we finally got the wait time crisis fixed. Um, the way that I went about doing that was through a number of different things. First is, is that um, I made sure that this was the priority of the organization. And I held what was called a national stand down, which is a military term that you stop doing everything else but focus on something that's really a critical mission. And so we got rid of the wait time, which was up to 550,000 veterans waiting more than 30 days for care. We got rid of that wait time pretty quickly. And then we dramatically expanded our use of telehealth to be able to take care of veterans in parts of the country that we didn't have healthcare professionals in, in enough supply. We then uh, gave advanced practice nurses and pharmacists uh, independent practice authority so they could practice at the top of their license and that expanded our capabilities. We hired a whole bunch of new providers to be able to fill in the vacancies that were there. And we posted our wait times publicly on our website so that everybody could see whether we were making progress or if we had problems in certain areas. So when you put all those factors together, uh, the response of the people who worked in the VA was phenomenal. And we were able to get the VA weight crisis over. And in fact, now the VA has better wait times than you would find in the private sector. And um, still to this day, the only healthcare system that posts publicly its wait times. Well, that's that's amazing. What a uh, what a terrific, uh, frankly, portrait in leadership and uh, and set of accomplishments on a on a critical objective. Um, you know, there there are many parallels, and you and I have talked about them in in veterans care and cancer care. One of them is is the failure of execution, 
despite a a a good mission or a strategy. I think most people, when they look at veterans and look at cancer care, you know, 99% of people say, yes, that's a population that really needs our help and needs our attention. Translating that into execution, though, is a is a very different um, uh, story. And and look across American healthcare, uh, the access and the wait times uh, are, are simply too long in so many other areas. Uh, but for uh, for veterans uh, prior to your arrival, and certainly for cancer patients now, um, it's an issue. Um, just kind of drawing a little bit on that thread of of leadership during crisis. So you you arrive there burning platform, you know, folks have been fired, you know, criminal charges uh, being brought. Uh, just that number is staggering. The number of, of veterans waiting for, I believe you said over 500,000 waiting more than 30 days. Um, really some principles of leadership during crisis. You, you went through an execution plan of, of standing down, uh, you know, so the focus could be brought onto this. And um, and some very tactical things that you did, but just generally speaking, what are some of the things you've learned or attributes about leading during crisis um, from your from your uh, prior experience? Well, I think the first job of any leader is to tell the organization what the reality of the situation is, and so you don't hide bad news, uh, but you come out with a accurate assessment. And the leader is really the only one that's empowered to give that true picture. Then you have to set a priority and you have to offer a plan and a vision for moving forward. And as you said, that has to be a very specific operational plan. So everybody in the organization understands what their role and responsibility in addressing that priority is. The leader then has to be consistent in messaging because too often um, the message changes and shifts and that confuses the organization. So remaining focused on those priorities. And then, of course, finding the right team. And often, leaders take too long to get rid of people on the team that aren't contributing or committed to accomplishing the task or capable of accomplishing the task. And leaders then have to, once they get the right team, empower that team and support the team to be able to go out and to get this done. Now, the VA, many people may not realize, is a very large organization. It's $210 billion a year in budget, the second largest federal agency. It has 425,000 employees all across the United States and in fact the world. So you need a team to do this. No one individual could possibly get that type of consistency of messaging and the consistency of an operational plan. So I think I think those are the key objectives. I think once a leader sets a plan in place, is clear with messaging, provides the tools, the resources, and the people to get it done, then you have to be able to be accountable for the results and make course adjustments. And that's why I felt it was so important to publish publicly our results and wait times. And I did the same thing with opioid use, another problem in the VA. We published all of our uh, medical centers and the percent of opioids that they were prescribing for their patients. Uh, we did the same thing with our disciplinary actions. We published uh, how we were holding our own employees being accountable. And so so I think that that's, uh, that's an important part of addressing a crisis as well, being transparent. 
Well, well, those are terrific. And and so much of what you said, again, just applies to American healthcare in general. In many ways, what you did is a, is a microcosm or maybe a tip of the spear of, of some of the things going on in American healthcare. And your, your uh, attributes that you spoke about in leadership, I think, during crisis are, are so germane today as, uh, as the nation and the world struggles during um, this, uh, in many ways, unprecedented time. Uh, with respect to the global pandemic and and all of the um, the second order effects uh, affecting healthcare, affecting the economy, and, and so many things. So I, I think some tremendous attributes uh, there. Uh, another aspect that we're we're certainly dealing with, uh, you know, I know is uh, we're 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 just coming out of a of an election, uh, a recent election here, and it's a it's a time when the country has a lot of uh, sort of. Uh, strife and, and divisiveness and, and partisan politics, but you hold a couple of, of very, uh, I think, incredible distinctions. Uh, you were confirmed by the U.S. Senate, first of all, 100 to zero, which is uh, remarkable uh, in general. You, you don't see that normally, and you certainly see that less and less in, in these times. And then you served uh, both President Obama and President Trump. So so take us back to um, kind of the, the transition. You were uh, you were you were serving um, the VA. You'd done some of these things that you talked about, and then uh, you got a call from President Trump to uh, to serve. Um, take us through that. For me, uh, I was there in public service. I didn't come to run for office. I didn't want to get elected to office, and so uh, keeping the politics out of what I was doing was very important. And traditionally, veterans issues, military issues, frankly, I think healthcare should be the same, should not be a political issue. And in fact, it traditionally had not been. People who worked with me, like many of the senators that I worked with the entire time I was in Washington and I worked closely with, um, said to me uh, when I left, um, you know, thank you, we enjoyed working with you. And I have to say, um, I couldn't tell you today if you were a Democrat or a Republican. And I said, Senator, uh, perfect. That's exactly the way it should be, because that has nothing to do. When uh, people serve our country, our veterans, they're both Democrats and Republicans. They're, they're all Americans. And that's the way that I always wanted to run the VA. In terms of um, how I got to be the secretary, yes, I was appointed um, under President Obama. I was a uh, presidential appointee, like every political appointee, uh, when the new election happened and uh, the inauguration was going to occur on January 20th of 2017, I had turned in my resignation as every political presidential appointee does. My back, my boxes were packed. I was leaving Washington to go back to the private sector. And in mid-January, uh, I got a call uh, that the president-elect wanted to see me in Trump Towers in New York. And uh, I thought, boy, what a great opportunity to essentially have an exit interview where I could uh, share with the president what we had accomplished, the tremendous progress that we had, and give my recommendation for what a new administration should hopefully continue and what opportunities they had, in my opinion, to even make greater strides for our veterans. I left and um, I felt good. I had a good exit interview. Uh, 
a couple of days later, uh, I happened to be watching TV when the president-elect was doing a press conference and he announced that I was his new secretary. Well, you know, I love your I love your attitude. I love your sense of accountability, your sense of uh, your devotion to a higher purpose. And so as, as we kind of just look, look back at your story, you know, here's this, you know, this, this all-American guy wants to grow up to be a firefighter. His, his grandfather served in World War One, you know, higher sense of, of purpose and, and devotion and dedication to this great nation, which um, I know you and I share. And so. You have these experiences. You you make a tremendous difference um, on serving um, the veterans of our uh, of our nation. At the same time, I, I know as President Obama once uh, said said to uh, said to me and, and some others, uh, no matter how much you've done, there's always more to do. And so, obviously, there were some things you know left unfinished um, that that we'll get to in a moment here, but. But you you came out and you you wrote this book that I think has has an incredible title. Um, it it really shouldn't be this hard to serve your country, uh, and I know I know many of us uh, feel that way. Uh, tell us a bit about um, what 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 you were trying to achieve with that book, and and kind of what the um, the spirit of uh, of that book is. The strange thing about when you serve in government, you know, before I came home that evening, I was the head of an agency of you know 425,000 people responsible for caring for 20 million American veterans and following a short tweet later I was no longer in that role and had no ability to share what I was trying to accomplish where I felt I was making progress where I felt that there was a barrier I had no way to give my advice uh, to a new person that would eventually have to get confirmed by the U.S. Senate to lead the agency. And so you take all of this knowledge and all of this experience and passion for helping improve veterans' lives, and there's nowhere to go with it. You're just simply irrelevant after that point in time. So I really felt an obligation to put down on paper what my plan was what was working, what my advice is and recommendations to keep this system healthy and what needs to happen in the future. And I believe, like most executives, that when you're trying to change an organization as big as the VA and as bureaucratic as a big government organization, it's going to take years to happen and that we better have some consistency in that plan and a consistency in leadership. So this was very much written for future leaders of the VA. And I feel that it was really my best advice to people as to how we could continue to make the progress that I think we were seeing in the VA. But the title of the book, It Shouldn't Be This Hard to Serve Your Country, really has two meanings. One is, it's also written for veterans to honor them and their families, like we will on Veterans Day. But to talk about why this was so important, why it's important that we have a government agency that does this, why why we just don't send all of our veterans out to the private sector and let the private sector, which takes care of the rest of us uh, in a pretty good way, why they really need this and why this is a responsibility that we have as citizens to support 
the Department of Veteran Affairs. So it's about veterans, but it's also about my personal story and what I went through, my family went through to be able to serve the country. And certainly I don't want anybody feeling sorry for me when I see the men and women who have truly sacrificed, including people who have given their lives serving our country, my sacrifice is nothing compared to theirs. But that this was a very personal and difficult environment to serve in. My family and I went through a lot. And I tell that story about the subversiveness, the division, the political gamesmanship that you have to go through to run an agency like this. And frankly, it shouldn't be that way. We need the very best and brightest like you, Pat, to raise their hand and to go to Washington and being willing to serve, to make our country work. And if it's just filled with this type of partisan politics, a lot of people are gonna say, you know what, I'd like to go, but I'm not gonna put myself and my family through that. And I had a lot of people advise me, don't do it. You're gonna ruin your reputation. You're gonna end up getting uh, involved in stuff that frankly, why not just stay as a hospital CEO where you're doing fine and making a lot of money. And I said, no, look, that's not that's not what matters to me. What matters to me is making a difference. So I hope that this book um, encourages people to go into public service, but do it with their eyes wide open. I hope that this book helps veterans get better care. And I hope that the average American who reads it understands why it's so important that we have a strong functioning VA if we want this country to continue to have a military that's going to be something we're proud of. You know, speaking of, of, uh, of this, uh, you know, we had um, Greg Simon, who, who I believe you know on, on the show previously. Uh, he shared some of his thoughts from, um, you know, leading that, uh, that cancer moonshot uh, previously. Um, obviously, there's a lot on the minds of Americans. There's a lot on the minds of, of all of us here during this period. Certainly, our cancer patients want to know, uh, you know, what they might expect. Well, what What are some thoughts you have about, you know, what what a future administration might do with respect to, to cancer care? Well, I'm so glad you had Greg on the show, Pat. He's an example of what the country needs. You take talented people from the private sector who have a real passion for seeing improvements and changes, and you bring them in the government and you watch what changes can happen. And I had the privilege of working on the cancer moonshot in 2016 as part of the uh, Obama administration, my role at the VA, of course. Um, and Greg, Greg was a high energy guy. Of course, he's a cancer survivor himself, and he really wanted to implement both President Obama and Vice President Biden's uh, vision to find a cure for cancer, but to make cancer care better for all Americans. I remember one meeting I came into at the Cancer Moonshot in the vice president's office, and uh, Greg comes running in, and uh, he was wearing a tuxedo suit top and blue jeans uh, for his pants. And I said, Greg, that's an interesting uh, combination that you're wearing. And he looked at himself. And this was clearly the first time that he realized that he wasn't wearing matching clothes. And he said, you know, I got home so late last night that uh, I went right to sleep. And in the morning, I just grabbed my clothes, 
and I ran back to the office and I thought, uh, you know what, that makes a lot of sense to me. A guy who's trying to cure cancer and running as if uh, he was running towards the end of the finish line in a sprint. Who's got time to worry about if they're close match? He's got something more important to take care of. And uh, that just gives you an idea of how hard these guys were working. But for me, being part of the Cancer Moonshot really showed how if the leadership, and in this case, it was Vice President Biden, was saying, look, we are going to do something big here. We're going to focus on something. And I don't want to have any of these institutional silos. In other words, the Department of Defense, the Department of Veteran Affairs, NIH, the FDA, the National Cancer Institute, everybody had cancer initiatives. But we didn't ever talk about them. We didn't share data. We didn't share best practices. We were doing them in our independent silos. And the moonshot was about breaking down those silos and working towards a common good. And I saw more happen in a short period of time and more progress be made, even within the Department of Veteran Affairs by breaking those walls down across government, uh, that it truly impressed me that significant goals can be accomplished if we just put our minds to it and put the politics aside. Couldn't agree with you more. And uh, and I, I know that that I and, and so many of our listeners um, are, are looking forward to uh, to that happening, uh, generally speaking, and in, in particular with respect to cancer care, with respect to veteran care, um, that, that we can really take some, some leap forwards in, in, uh, in the years ahead. We've kind of touched on this theme, uh, you know, throughout the show here. And as we, as we begin to conclude, um, some of the similarities, some of the intersections between veterans care and cancer care, um, certainly, uh, you know, sadly, many veterans suffer, um, you know, from this highly, uh, you know, prevalent and, and uh, horrible uh, disease known as cancer. But, but as you look forward, um, you, you know, what are some of the, the top priorities uh, that you see that, that we need to address with both respect to cancer care, veterans care, you know, maybe the intersection of both? What would you, what would you say are some of the top, top areas of focus? My goal for all veterans in this country is, is that they should have access to the very best health care that this country can offer. And all along, I've been clear that the VA can't do this alone, that they have to be willing to develop a system where if you put the veteran in the center, and that's all that matters, getting the veteran the best care, that means that they should have access to the private sector, if the private sector is providing that care better, if there are clinical trials, if there are advances in cancer care that the VA doesn't yet have access to, the veteran should clearly get access to them in the private sector. But if there are centers of excellence and that best care can be provided in the VA healthcare system, the veteran deserves that as well. And so, for example, there are cancers that happen with certain toxic exposures that the VA knows a lot about because they are exposures that happen when our veterans were in those situations like Asian Orange and currently with our burn pits uh, where there's cancers associated with these toxic exposures. And the VA has terrific ability and more experience in that than many places in the private sector. 
but they certainly don't have all of the expertise in cancer. And so we should be creating a hybrid system that allows veterans to be able to seamlessly go between the private sector and the VA when they need that type of care that's possible. And I've been pretty public about that type of model. I published this model in the New England Journal of Medicine. I've talked about the need for VA to have to be subject to the competition that we see in the private sector where good quality should be rewarded and bad quality should be punished. And I believe that that's the case for VA, which is why I've published all of the quality data when I was secretary, so that people could see not how VAs compare to other VAs, but how VAs compare to local and regional and national hospitals in the private sector, because that's really the standard. So, so my vision is, is offering everything that the very best of this country can offer to our veterans. And that means working with places like CTCA, and working with academic centers and working with regional community hospitals, uh, as well as strengthening the core programs that VA can do best. Well, that makes a ton of sense on so many levels. And I think some of those best principles, setting a high standard, not just a relative standard of how you compare against your internal you know, system or your, your neighbor, but really, you know, what does the standard need to be? I think this, this notion of public-private partnership, uh, the notion of pushing the patient at the center um, is so applicable to, to veteran care. As you and I have discussed, it's so applicable to cancer care, where uh, too often the patient is not put directly at the center, um, but the system that really needs to, to come, you know, to put the patient in the center and, and meet the patient where they are. It's uh, one of many things that, that you and I talk about, um, you know, with, with respect to CTCA. Um, and at the same time, really find that best hybrid between, you know, where the patient is located and, and where they, they need to get the best care. So we've talked before about a patient coming to CTCA for a complex surgery or, you know, complex therapy, but getting their follow-up closer to home because that might just be down the street to them. And, and, and we are just better when we partner. We're better when we break these silos. I think that's true as a country. It's true as a health system. It's, it's certainly true as a people. So, so you know, David, uh, your, your comments today, I think, have had broad applicability to, to leadership, to, to country, to healthcare, to cancer care, uh, certainly to veterans care. Um, so with that, um, I just, again, want to thank you, but anything that you want to sort of leave the audience with, uh, you know, not just to, to veterans, uh, but to, uh, to cancer fighters in the audience, any, any words of wisdom or advice that you might have? Well, I just want to share some optimism. You know, 2020 has been a tough year in so many ways. I don't ever remember us dealing with so many crises at the same time. But I still maintain a strong belief that we can come together and we can solve the types of problems that the country has. Uh, where we have trouble is when we're divided. And so what my hope is for not only the health part of our organ of of our organizations and our healthcare system, but for the country at whole, is that now that the election's over, we put aside our partisanship. We focus on some really tough problems. We see the problems for the reality that they are, but that we develop a national 
strategy and we stay consistent on message and we put the resources in place to tackle this. This country's been through tough times before and we'll have tough times ahead, but I'm confident that we can do this. And probably the most important part of leadership, I believe, is being principle-based and talking about what our principles are. Now, fortunately, we have a constitution that's filled with principles, but it's important that we make sure that we each express what those principles are. And I know a principle that's important to you and why I respect your leadership so much, Pat, is that access to healthcare is really something that you believe in. And that's why you've taken CTCA and you've expanded the ability for more patients to be able to get access by entering insurance networks and providing that type of experience to as many people as possibly you, you can have. And I think with our current pandemic still, you know, unfortunately with us, we have to make sure that all citizens have access to the type of care that they need and that we as a country are doing everything we can to deal with this pandemic head on. And so uh, while it can appear at times bleak, I remain optimistic. I know that we can do this. I know that there is a path forward. And I look very much to participating in that. And um, for our veterans, again, on this Veterans Day, uh, I just want to thank them for their service. You know, whenever there is a national emergency, and I remember traveling around the country with the president and the vice president after hurricanes and natural disasters, I'd get off Air Force One and uh, I'd see people on the side of the road setting up food stands and handing out hamburgers and handing out towels and things to help people. And almost inevitably, I'd go over and introduce myself and they would tell me they're veterans because veterans still volunteer in their communities more than most people. They still are looking for ways to give back. So uh, again, on this Veterans Day, I want to I know that they'll continue to be part of the solution and thank them again and their families. And thank you, Pat, for this opportunity today. Well, well, thank you. And what a, what a terrific way to end. I, I share your sentiment, uh, to, you know, to end where we began. Veterans, incredible sacrifices that have, have made them incredible people who are always willing to pitch in. And uh, I share your, your absolute heartfelt wish of a happy Veterans Day. Definitely share your sentiment that, that access is, is everything. Uh, you know, what, what good is a great healthcare system or any system for that matter if people can't access it, right? And, uh, and then finally, I share your optimism. Uh, you know, this is a, um, this is a country where a people who have, uh, you know, who have navigated through crisis before, who have uh, risen through adversity, who have picked ourselves up from the, you know, the, the bootstraps and, uh, and, uh, and, and gone on to, um, you know, to, to great futures. And I, I share your optimism for the, the year ahead. And uh, I can't thank you enough for taking the time, David. Thank you so much for your, your leadership, for sharing your thoughts with us today. And uh, have a wonderful, wonderful day. Thanks again. Thank you.